to Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm Peter Alegi, and it is a pleasure to introduce my co-host Peter Lim's interview with historian Innocent Nsindo. The interview was recorded at the African Studies Association meeting in Philadelphia in December of 2012. Welcome, Dr. Masinda. Okay, thank you very much, Peter. Well, congratulations on this wonderful new book, Ethnicity in Zimbabwe, Transformations in Kalunga and Ndebele Societies, 1860 to 1990, a really path-breaking volume. Let's jump straight into the book, a real tour de force of complex African identities over 130 years. Can you please outline the main themes of the book and their significance? The book explores a number of very interconnected themes. What I try to do is to try to represent those different themes, but at the same time not ignoring certain linear traces of the past. So the first chapter basically grapples with theoretical issues where I discuss the issues of ethnicities and identities and then with specific reference to work that has been going on in Matabeleland. That is then followed by a very, very important chapter. Uh, Not to say some of them are not important, but but they are all very important. The chapter on domination and resistance, where I talk about pre-colonial Ndebele and Kalanga relations. The point actually in putting that chapter, which covers 1860 to about 1993, is to actually prove a very, very important point that is part of the book. That contrary to what we have been saying as scholars, Ethnic identity existed before colonialism. So that is one main thrust of that chapter. I look at the way the different relations that subsisted between Debele and Kalanga led to the emergence of both Kalanga and Debele uh, ethnicities. So chapter 3 looks at the transformations that happened and it's entitled Remaking Communities on the Margins, Chieftains and Ethnicities in Bulili Mamangwe between 1893 to 1950. It covers basically the changes that we begin to see from the time the British South African Corporation colonizes the area. This was the area known as Plum Tree. This is the area known as Plum Tree and many, many parts of actually Western Matabeleland, Cholocho and stuff. It's a very, very huge area covering slightly over a third of Matabeleland. And almost completely neglected in the historical writing until you came along. There's absolutely nothing that has been said about that area after all. So... It's one area that is very, very, very original in this book, and so forth. So I talk about the the, the different sides of struggles that we see there. Number one is the way Kalanga communities began to come together, claiming that they've got their own chiefs, and rebelling against the kind of colonial control that had been imposed by the government where, in fact, they then began to claim that they had their own chiefs and so on, running away from Ndebele uh, chieftaincies and resisting the control of Ndebele chieftaincies. And another very important facet is their resistance also to the state project of actually forcing them to, call, to bring in taxes to the government, something that they did by actually migrating on the other side of the border to Botswana. 
and coming back when the state has withdrawn and so forth. What you then see in that is that the state was increasingly becoming very worried about communities in that region. And the state doesn't quite manage to control these people within that region between that time. And one of the arguments I made make there is that attempts by the state to impose certain arenas of control were usually very, very unsuccessful mm. because of the nature of communities that existed there and also historical claims that the state was actually failing to to live up to or to promote. Then this chapter is followed by another chapter, chapter 4, which I termed ultra-royalism. I think you forgive me, this is not a neutral term to talk about ultra-royalism. It could perhaps bring in certain notions of extremism and so on and so on. But I was just trying to make it very emotive. And this is the end of belly royalty. Yeah, yeah, this is in the Bella royalty. It's called Ultra-Royalism, King's Kettle and Post-Conquest Politics among the Ndebele. And it also covers the period 1893 to about, eight, uh, to about 1940s. What you see is, contrary to what Corbyn say in his work on the Ndebele, where it's he Ju- says... Julian Corbyn. Yeah. Julian Corbyn. Yeah. He says the Ndebele state was not destroyed after 1893, but it was transformed. But what I note is that if ever it was transformed, he doesn't actually speak about the nature of transformation that happened in the Ndebele kingdom and so on. I do argue that the, the Ndebele kingdom was both destroyed and transformed. Destroyed in the sense that the institution of kingship was completely undermined. It was no longer there. What remained were claims to kingship and claims to rights based on certain notions of royalism and royalty. So there were some people from the royal family who were actually trying to hold on to what they considered to be their privileges that they had before colonization. Mm. For instance, the right to own cattle, the right to marry from among the Kumalo or from among the royalty itself, Mm. Mm. and the right to chieftaincy over the rest of Matabeleland, including Bulili Mamangwe, where most of the Kalanga were, and, and so forth. And also, very intriguingly, the right to keep servants and slaves some of whom were uh, Kalanga and Shona and Venda and Sutu and so forth. So what you see then is the kind of conflict and confusion that happens when certain rights are being withdrawn by a new government. And this is exactly uh, what I talk about in that place. You'll be intrigued to to find out one very interesting thing about the ultra-royalist movement is the return of Lobengula's grandchildren from South Africa in the 1920s. Right. I'll make a brief mention, I should mm. make a brief mention of what actually happened in the 1890s for you to understand that. When Rhodes, around 1889, 1890, thereabout, he actually tricked the Debele uh, royals, especially the, the remaining prominent chiefs, he tricked them into thinking that he was actually going to take Lobengula's two children and educate them in South Africa. So what then happened was he took these guys and he went down with them. He never allowed them to come back. These were Albert and Rhodes Lobengula. Mm. 
So, no, it was the children of Albert. And it was the, the father of Albert and Rose. One of them was in Juve. The other one with Wimpezeni and so on. So the, children, the grandchildren of Lord Bengula, Albert and Rose, returned to Babwe later on in the 1920s when their father was already dead in South Africa in 1909. So these children, grandchildren began to actually claim cattle. That they claimed were actually cattle belonging to their grandfather, Lord Bengula. Mm. So they went from crow to crow, seizing cattle from ordinary people, mm. including, and very interestingly, they also seized cattle from some of the Ndebele chiefs, like Maduna and so on. So what emerged as a result of that cattle expropriation was increasing animosity and division between the royal family, with the result that what existed in the process was the some kind of very deep-seated squabbles, which then ended up happening, which further divided the royal family itself. So one thing I make here is that the Ndebele royalty since the end of the Ndebele kingdom was very severely divided by some of the processes and squabbles that were internal to their society. And for this reason, it, uh, this division between the royalty opened up certain arenas in which Ndebele ethnicity could be democratized in the sense that it allowed the commoners to come in and voice their concerns about what it meant to be Ndebele. Mm. The royalty could not hit back against the commoners because they themselves were actually divided in what they considered to be very important constituencies of Ndebele identity. And another point of yeah. division, of course, was language. Yeah. In the next chapter, you talk about a language and ethnicity in Matabele land and contests and identities, and then you move on to this very interesting second-last chapter on ethnicity and nationalism in Matabele yeah. land from 1950 to 79, and then round out the book with final chapter on mm. what you call post-colonial terror, politics, mm. violence and identity from independence in 1980 to 1990. Let me then come back then to this language question because it's quite fascinating. Mm. You've written earlier on this in a number of your journal articles and you show how closely language relates to ethnicity and in doing so you also show the active role across time of commoners as well as educated elites among both Kalanga and Ndebele and you talk about, for instance, the use of poetry, uh, the demand for greater linguistic space in newspapers and politics and schools. So how did all this play out? I mean, uh, also for the li listeners' purposes, perhaps you could just briefly sketch who the Kalanga are. The Kalanga are basically a people that originally were part of the pre-colonial, or whatever you want to call it, Torua polity. The Torah is a post-Great Zimbabwe political formation where people moved down to the southern part of the country. However, the, the Torah were later subjected to Rosary political control, in which the Rosary political system allowed the existence of very disparate small mm. political systems mm. made up of a people in the whole belt mm. of the rest of Matebele who spoke a very, very similar a language, of course, barring dialectical differences and so on. And, uh, and so this, the Kalanga was speaking you know, uh, sort of Chikalanga. Chikalanga, yeah. Mm. So they existed in that whole belt that sandwiched Matebele and, and the rest of Botswana. And what so about on. this linguistic dimension then and the commoners and the elites? How does it all play out in colonial Matebele land? 
Mm, what happened is that when the basically this whole debate about language emerges in the mainly in the 1920s going forward. Remember when the government came into force, the British South African Corporation regime, mm. they didn't have a very clear education policy. That is number one, and therefore for that they also didn't have uh, African presses. African newspapers and so on. So the question of language had not yet got into them. What had uh, uh, been important was uh, basically uh, 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 what missionaries were doing in the mission stations and so on and so on. So before uh, uh, 1920s, government did not even care about, about uh, what languages were being spoken by the people and what should be the official language of the mm. area. Mm. But in the 1940s, they became more involved in education. They then began to think about what language should be used for purposes of education. And you would see the recommendations of C.M. Doc in 1930, where he recommended that Sindebele should be used as the language of instruction. Doc is a major linguist yeah. who's brought in, from South Africa. To yeah, in the whole, he was brought from South Africa. And, and he, was, and he, he, was he, a he wasn't a specialist on Zimbabwean he, peoples or languages at all. He wasn't at all. No. He was just a professor of Bantu languages, so to speak. And, and he sort of messed up, I understand. He messed uh, things he up. Big mess. Mm. Made a big mess. One was the recommendation that Sindebele be used in Matebele and as the official language. And you must note the Sindebele as Zulu, not Sindebele as Sindebele. Very important distinction. And that that is a very, very important distinction because then it triggers a very huge debate among the people about what actually was the language of Matebeleland or of the people in Matebeleland. With most of the common people basically fighting and saying, no, uh, we shouldn't be speaking Isizulu, we should be speaking Sindebele. And then also among the Kalanga, there were two sorts of developments there. One was, how do we place ourselves in the context of a state system that is promoting the use of Sindebele? The other one was, should we not rather do something about promoting our own language? Because there was very little literature or Bibles or whatever. There was very little literature in, 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 in the Chikalanga. Basically, the only work that had been done had been done by London Missionary Society. And yet this was a very large population. Uh, this what, was a massive... A couple of hundred thousand people, it's perhaps? Over today. that, yeah. over that, mm. about more than a third of Matabeleland. And of course, the people go, peoples also go across the border. Into what Botswana. became the colonial body, yes. Yeah. So one, the developments in Botswana Protectorate and the development in Matabeleland were very similar. One was that in Botswana, Botswana was promoted. In colonial Rhodesia, or colonial Zimbabwe, Sindebele was promoted. So the Kalanga there being sandwiched in between were left to learn either Sindebele or Chikalanga. So what began to come up was some kind of linguistic activism, even in the schools, mm. where uh, even at home in the rural areas where even some parents you would not were actually forbidding their children to speak Sindebele at home. They say, no, this is the language of the school, it doesn't belong here, and so on and so on. Which created quite a lot of chaos, especially in the 1930s. But also very critical are developments happening among the people who were able to read. There were so many debates into the Bantumira about the place. Was the first African newspaper. Yeah, the first African newspaper published from 1931, mm. which was originally called the Chiringriso. Oh. 
<laughs> yeah, mirror. Actually, in Christo, uh, it's actually a Nyanja term for mirror, the mirror as you know it, yeah. and, and so on. So there were there were a lot of debates, especially later in the 1940s, about the position of Chikalanga, especially as uh, most of the Kalanga people were claiming space in the Bantu mirror. So the so language, on. in a way, became an anchor for the mm. culture and the identity. Mm. And so you re- you because you framed this around identities. And mm. Kalanga people were more or less marginalized, but they were able to fight back and mm. express themselves through their language, through what, through poetry, through performance. Yeah. And yeah. Definitely. And one of the things that you, you find characterizing the Kalanga in that is the kind of feeling that if anyone who happened to be Kalanga is seen to be speaking in Sindebele, then he is actually a sellout. Ostracized. Yeah, he's, you are ostracized. You are mm. told you are proud in learning Lulimi Gwabangwe, which means someone else's tongue. You are not proud of your mother tongue. Let the Kalanga people be proud of themselves, and so on and so on. There's an attempt during this time to create a Kalanga Literature, literature Association. Mm. which you would find from reading the documents, it's actually kind of reactionary. It's fighting against perceived domination by other ethnic groups, by the Tswana, by the Ndebele, and so on. There is a sense in which the writers of the time have this feeling that should our language disappear, then we as a people are also disappearing. So there is a relationship between language laws and processes happening at an identity level so forth. So they were very, they became very, very critical issues during those times. It, obviously it's a very complex mm. mix of identities mm. and I'm reminded of another element in Matabili land, particularly in Bulawayo, was the Mfengu people who migrated from the Eastern Cape of South Africa. And so Ndebele speakers themselves, of course, are trying to assert their identity. And so you frame the whole book around ethnicity in Zimbabwe. Perhaps uh, another question here is to do with the sources. And Mm. you've recovered so many lost dramatis personae. You've even discovered a photo of a blast furnace of blacksmiths. Uh, And so you're starting to rebuild this hidden history of Kalanga culture and language. But one of the missing dimensions perhaps is the uh, the personalities, the individuals, the families even, the clans. Mm. Perhaps in the future people could use your book to start fleshing out the the richer history of these people or is that something that is too difficult with the sources do you think? I think it is possible. There are certain uh, people who have played a very huge part in promoting Kalanga culture and Kalanga identity. People like the Chumas, people like the Malikongwas, people like the Gwakuban Lovus of Dombodema, and a lot of uh, people like that. Some of them are still alive. Some of them played a very important part in the writing of the Kalanga Bible, and so on and so on. It is possible to recover their histories, but not necessarily in the written sources in the main archives, I would imagine. Mm. So the book is a very important starting point in that I was able to glean out the little that existed in the main official archive, but more importantly, I complemented that with very strong researches on the ground. 
So there are possibilities of actually gaining perhaps certain archives hidden in family homes mm. in the rural areas, mm. one would imagine. And I think they are there anywhere. What I found, there's something that I found that I just mentioned in the, in the book in past, especially in the, for the period about the 1980s thereabout. There was a guy who came up who was very, very crucial in Blue Air in the 1980s to about 1988, 89, called Milin Salamalaba, who was actually promoting what they called the Kalanga Literature Association and so on, who was making representations to the government about the writing and the promotion of Kalanga as a language and so on. But unfortunately, he's dead. Maybe one could go to the Malabas mm. and get to know about that history. And there are lots of big archives actually around those things he was writing in Blue archives. So it is possible to actually get some histories of some of these important persons who played a part. And of course, as you show very well in the last two chapters of your mm. book, there are contemporary implications of these issues of mm. identity and how they relate to ethnicity and nationalism and also violence. What has then happened to this mix, this explosive mix, if you like, in, in the last two decades? How does this all play out under Mugabe and how did it play out in the last period of colonialism? You see, it's an unfinished business, if one would like to say. There is, on one hand, a very particular, very interesting development in Matabeleland since the 1960s, especially the split in the movement, in a, where you've got the split from Zapu leading to the emergence of ZANU and Zapu. Mm. What then began to happen is, because of the nature of political mobilization for support, ZANU became dominant in Mashonaland and ZAPU became dominant in Matabeleland. And that consequently created a very, very important kind of a bifurcated state, if you want, to use Mamdani's term mm. in, another, in another sense, mm. not in his rural urban, urban sense. Mm. I'm talking of it in, in a regionalist sense. Yes. But that kind of regionalization of Matabeleland became very, very politically pertinent. And that coming into 1980s, the parties campaigned on this very regionalist kind of seating. With Matebeland, with Zapu winning only one seat in a, one part of Matebeland, and Mashonaland, all seats except that one going to, going to Zanu. So what later happened then is a kind of convenient brotherhood mentality that developed between Debele and Kalanga as they were kind of creating a regional political identity to actually starve off the influence of what they perceived to be Shona super-tribalism. So there is a very strong regional identity on one hand that was being formed in Matabelen since the 1960s and 1980s, especially as a result of the massacres. But on the other hand, there's also another hidden history within that region mm. where you've got ethnicities trying also to voice their concerns there. The development of a very strong developed regional identity as a political identity has actually created potential for ethnic claims also within the region, with some of the Kalanga feeling that they are being isolated. We are being made to learn Sindebele, we are being made to associate with the, that Sindebele high culture, 
and our concerns are being completely ignored. Did they were they so, involved in Zapu in the liberation war? Kalanga? Very, very. There was yeah. a very strong. If I would like to say, if uh, there was a very strong Kalanga element mm. in the leadership of mm. Zapu. Okay. I think three quarters of the leadership of Zapu were Kalanga. Mm. Nkomo himself was partly Kalanga. Does that now then put them in the firing line vis-a-vis -vis Mugabe? Not necessarily. It became very complex. Yes. In, it became very complex in the 19, 1980s. Mm. Mugabe's target mainly in the 1980s what could be called Debele ethnic strongholds. More massacres were actually happening in places where there were more stronger Debele uh, identities than Kalanga. That is very, very, a very, very important observation. Mm, mm. So there were more massacres, especially in Kezi. There were more massacres in the, in the Bubi area and so on than there were in actually plum tree areas where many of the Kalanga were. I would imagine there was an attempt at divide and rule right. uh, at some point, but that was a very, very fatal and unsuccessful project. And today? Today, obviously, there is some confusion in Matabeland as to, number one, the political identity of the region, number two, the different social identities that should exist. There is so much confusion. The parties that are coming up that are advocating for cessation, let's form our own state. Some of them are talking about federalism and so forth. But some of them, the people in Matabeland are still going on with a very strong unitary state. So there's quite a lot of co political confusion in the region itself. Well, so, com coming back to the earlier period and when you started this research, how did you chance upon this topic? What was, and so what were some of the influences on you embarking upon a PhD in, in, in history? Yeah, I like that. When I was doing my first degree, I was so fortunate to have been taught by Terence Ranger for about two years. Ranger had a very, I don't know how to describe it, was, he was such a very influential scholar who had a way of modeling what it meant to be a scholar to the students, even when he was teaching you a third year. Mm. I was so strongly influenced by his writings and I liked the sweet way by which he was writing, the way he was playing around with the sources and so on. And I felt like, I think I need to take up the challenge and do maybe a similar work and see if I'm going to, to become a historian. <laughs> I didn't think it was possible then. But initially, uh, my intention was to do a history of Mberengwa, one area in Midlands where you've got a mixture of different people, the Lemba and so on, and many, many other people from a mainline Karanga identity. But then I didn't find that area to be particularly resourceful so what I did was to, because there were very few sources anywhere, mm. mainly by Harold von Sickard and so on and so on. So I moved into Matabele and said to myself, what's crucial about this? I found that there was a history that had not been written, mm. especially a history of Kalanga people. And even that of the Ndebele, regardless of the fact that there were books, two books already, Voices from the Rocks and Violence and Memory, yes. I found that there were a lot of very missing pieces, many missing pieces of history that were actually not brought to the fore. So I got into there and tried to do a comparative study of how two very dominant ethnic groups within the region 
intersected over a long period of time. And that is where this very fascinating book, Ethnicity in Zimbabwe, came from. Mm. Well, and finally, um, this afternoon you'll be speaking here at ASA in Philadelphia on your new area of research, which is, we could broadly term, I expect, something like colonial information policy. Mm. Can you give us a sneak preview? Yeah, what you find out is the... I think it's a continuation of one of the big arguments I'm making about the power of the state versus the power of the people. One thing that I observed in this uh, new area of research is the fact that until about the 1960s, information dissemination in, in Zimbabwe was very, very... colonial Zimbabwe was very chaotic. In the 1930s and during the war period to about the, the early 1950s, there wasn't any information policy. What kind of information regime that was there depended so much on the empire. If the Secretary of State says we should do this, this is how we should do. If he says we should write things like this, that's how we should do it. So what then began to change is the kind of thinking about the state and how to speak out to the natives and to the white people out there, especially in the federal, in the federal era. What you see then are attempts to think about how we should purvey information, how we should control a people, how we should deal with the press and so forth and so forth, beginning in the 1950s. But by that time still, this information regime was still very rudimentary. And it shows to you how slow the colonial system was in colonial Zimbabwe to come up with certain systems of control. Our assumptions as historians is that there was a mighty state there controlling people, forcing them to do this and so on and so on. But one of the things I observe is that there were so many flaws and weaknesses in the way even the state was communicating with its people. So it didn't have a very well-crafted information policy. So Ian Smith comes in at the end of 1962. He gets into power. The whites are leaving the country. There is uncertainty as to the future of the Federation. The British are saying you must decolonize and give over power to the black people and so on. And he's surprised. Now, because of all these kinds of development, how should I actually be, be dealing with these people? The information regime is chaotic. There is no way of controlling. I have no control over the press. The press is critical. The television is independent. And so on and so on. What should I do? He begins to come up with a very strong propaganda machinery, which, which, which partly helped him. Uh, for those years. But you see, one of the major arguments I say, even during Ian Smith's time, there were so many flaws uh, in terms of information control, in terms of information dissemination, in terms of even the crafting of the propaganda regime itself. And one very fascinating thing is, the kind of information policy that existed during Smith's time was borrowed by Robert Mugabe and he uses exactly the same machinery against his own people, which is very, very fascinating. Mm. But to trace that whole history from the 1930s 
to the current moment is very fascinating because it shows you then the different contours mm. in which the different regimes have tried to negotiate themselves. It is really quite fascinating mm. and we look forward so very much to that book as well. Thank you, uh, Dr. Msindo, very much for speaking to African Past and Present, podcasting here at the African Studies Association in Philadelphia. Thank you. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Our producer is Annette Janino. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L, dot O-R-G. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcaster sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. Thank you.